From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We focus on the extreme heat in our regular conversation about climate and weather with Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson. There's always been hot weather, but what we're seeing is the streaks of really long temperatures in the 90s and 100s. Those streaks are increasing, and at the same time, we're seeing far fewer record lows. It's about 10 to 1 record highs versus record lows. Then, we're desperate for solutions when it comes to preventing mass violence. A school district in Montrose has had some success. They'll share the model with other schools. And getting people off the streets into housing takes time. It took three different organizations to help get me back on my feet. Hear about a Coloradan who's taken that time to help for almost 40 years. If you have a car that you've been meaning to get rid of, just sitting around in your driveway or garage, you can clear out that space and make a difference at the same time by donating it to Colorado Public Radio. The process is easy and safe, and your donation can be handled online without any face-to-face interaction. The proceeds of your gift will help financially support CPR. Start the process now on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We've been breaking records in Colorado, but they're not ones to cheer for. Temperatures have hit all-time highs. And as much as that makes us want to be in air conditioning, we ventured outside for our regular conversation about climate and weather with Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson. Hi, Mike. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm okay. I'm a little puzzled as to where we are. It's It looks like an urban farm in North Denver, but we're standing in front of a slab of concrete. So we are at the Denver Urban Farm, which is off of Smith Road, and this is the location of the new weather station that's going in as part of a supplemental data to the National Weather Service. It will not be the official observation, which is still taken at DIA, but this location we're standing at has historic significance. This is the site of the previous airport, Stapleton, isn't it? It is. We are actually standing at the old National Weather Service office, which was out here off Smith Road for decades. The balloons that are sent up to measure the upper atmosphere, that building is right behind us. Every day they send up a weather balloon that goes up to 100,000 feet into the atmosphere and takes measurements all the way up. So that location has been here for decades. What has not been here for the last 25 years is a weather station because where we're standing right now was the exact location of the Denver temperature precipitation report since 1925 until DIA opened. Why do they need a supplemental station? Why are they going retro? Well, we're going retro because we have 75 years of data here on temperatures, precipitation, winds, snowfall, and that data is very important. Now, it got cut off when DIA opened because, well, they always say, why do they take the temperature at the airport nobody lives there? Well, they take it there because of airline safety. The FAA dictates they have to have a weather station there. That's why this one was here for Stapleton Airport for all those years. We're putting it back. Because the idea then is you can understand the long-term changes if you compare the current data to that huge 
treasure trove of previous data. Correct, correct. So we have data that was here since about 1925. Prior to that, it was at the Denver Water Board for many years back in the early part of the 20th century. And uh, it was at the Denver Post Office, I guess, in the late 1800s. And people kept saying, how come you're moving it way out there? Nobody lives out there. That's what they said when they moved it here to Stapleton in the 1920s. But by reattaching to the past, we'll be able to track how temperatures have changed with climate change uh, in the Denver area because it is different 17 miles to the northeast out at DIA and so this will be a very valuable bit of information to have to see how Denver's weather is really changing. Now I want to talk about these balloons that are sent aloft just a few paces from us. I didn't realize that weather balloons were a daily tool in meteorology uh, let alone that they were sent from a spot in North Denver I guess when there's enough helium, isn't there a helium shortage? Well, a couple of things. One, weather balloons, you'd think this is antiquated technology. We have radars and satellites and supercomputers. But actually, to get the really important data in a fine scale from the surface up to about, say, 20,000 feet, the balloons are still essential. So they're sent up twice a day from about 100 different locations scattered all over the United States. And we're standing 100 yards from one of those locations right now. So about 5 in the morning, 5 in the afternoon, a technician comes out fills up a great big balloon that gets to be about seven feet wide, seven feet tall, ties it off, and uh, hopefully there's not a leak in the balloon because if you're in the room full of helium, you'll go, oh no, the balloon has a leak. <laughs> uh, then they carefully attach the radio sonde, it's called underneath, let it go, and it takes off up into the sky, traveling upward at about a thousand feet per minute, radioing down to us all the weather conditions. So your forecast each evening, we can solidly say, relies at least in part on those balloons. It's true. And you mentioned the helium shortage. You can fill the balloons either up with hydrogen or helium. We use helium here because this is such an old building, it would not be properly uh, set up for a flammable substance such as hydrogen. Okay. I am here in part to talk to you about heat. Yes. You've been kind enough to meet me outside. It actually feels a bit cool this afternoon. It's only in the low 90s today. <laughs> it's only in the low 90s, he said. It even feels a bit humid. And a few showers are just over our shoulder right now, so that's good. We could use that. But the fact of the matter is we're right in the middle of an extreme heat wave, not only here, but in Europe, in China. It's a terrible situation. And this is not just hot weather. This is a hotter world. This is climate change. I've seen heat advisories, and you use the phrase heat wave. What's the difference between, you know, maybe just a series of uncomfortable days and a heat wave? Well, we've seen in the last 50 years the number of uncomfortable days increasing. And so now we get about 15 more 95 degree or hotter days a year than we did 50 years ago. And that is one of the uh, indications of a warming world because of the increase in carbon dioxide. And I gather a wave then is when you get a week or more of those sorts of conditions. Sure. Well, we're right in the middle now of uh, it's been about a week and a half straight of, if not 100 degree days, 90 degree days. I mentioned some recently broken records. You know, one of them was quite old, wasn't it? Doesn't that tell us that it's always been hot? Mike well, Nelson. There's always been hot weather, but what we're seeing is the streaks of really long temperatures in the 90s and 100s. Those streaks are increasing, and at the same time, we're seeing far fewer record lows. It's about 10 to 1 record highs versus record lows. 
You know, I've been thinking about the vicious cycle that I contribute to. So we all contribute to climate change by burning fossil fuels. So it gets hotter, drier. And then I crank my window air conditioning unit to keep cool. And that burns at least partly fossil fuels. I wonder if you give thought to that as well. I do. I've been driving an electric car for 10 years, so I've been an early adapter to that. I have solar panels on my house, and we try and do all of the things we can to kind of limit our contribution to uh, climate change. But it's going to take much more than personal virtue to change this. It's going to take big government projects to change this. We've done it before. I mean, I marvel at the Webb telescope and the things that we can do. And when I see things like that, I realize we can solve this problem. What forces are at play locally when we get a heat wave? What's occurring around and above us? Above us, we have a great big bubble of hot air. It's a a big high-pressure system, if you will. And so this big heat dome builds, and you get a lot of sunshine. You don't get a lot of moisture, although thunder just cracked behind me. I don't know if you could hear that or not, but you get a lot of sunshine. You don't get a lot of moisture. You don't get enough cloud cover, so you get more sunshine. The ground gets drier. The ground gets hotter, and it's a cycle that just builds on itself. And it's not until you can get some type of a strong storm system to come in and break down that heat dome that you'll see a real break in the heat wave. Anything in your crystal ball reveal that that's nigh? Uh, there's a little bit of a hint that the monsoon flow, that moisture that comes up from the Pacific Ocean, comes across Mexico into Arizona, New Mexico, may strengthen a bit in August. But the 90-day forecast is still warmer and drier than average. I'm amazed you're not in shorts. <laughs> I have to go down to the TV station. I can't work in shorts because uh, the camera will catch that. And That's not considered right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Ryan. Always a pleasure. I assure you that I'm in shorts. That is Mike Nelson, Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist. He joins us regularly to discuss Colorado climate and weather. We met at a weather station that's under construction at the site of Denver's old airport, and the hope is to have it operational by fall. Now, earlier we mentioned that helium shortage It's been so severe that they aren't launching balloons from that North Denver site. Instead, they're relying on weather reports from commercial aircraft flying in and out of DIA. And this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. ¿Quién somos nosotras? Who are we? I mean, now I feel like a Mexican-American man versus just feeling like a part-time Mexican and a part-time white wannabe guy. I'm May Ortega, and CPR's new podcast, ¿Quién are we? is all about being Latinx, Hispanic, Chicana, and the beautiful things that make us who we are. Look for ¿Quién are we? everywhere you listen. A city on the western slope is emerging as a leader in the prevention of school violence. Efforts in Montrose started in 2018 after the shooting in Parkland, Florida. James Pavlich leads operations for Montrose County Schools. Hi, James. Good morning, Ryan. So let's go back to 2018. Uh, You were working as an assistant principal in Montrose. What happened in the wake of the former students' attack in Florida uh, that prompted you to act in your own district? 
Well, we had a lot of kids that processed um, the attack in Parkland kind of poorly. We had kids posting online threats to schools or joking about it, uh, but we didn't have a real good way of determining the severity of their threat. So I think that spring or winter, I processed more than 10 expulsions uh, for students who had made threats, either direct, veiled, or indirect threats to, to the school. And I was pretty frustrated because some of those were obviously pretty low level, but we didn't have a good way of figuring out which ones were severe and which ones were not. Did you have a good way of knowing about all of the threats in the first place and who was making them? I mean, was it just about assessing the threats or having all the right intelligence? Well, I think Colorado does a pretty good job of providing school leaders with a lot of different feeds for information, providing community with a lot of different ways to report. And I felt like our school, we'd worked hard on our culture. So we had a culture where kids were reporting, you know, that they had concerns. That's how I found out about those 10 um, different threats um, that that year. So, no, I, I felt like we had the information feeds. We always want more. But the big thing was figuring out how to assess if they were severe or not. Figuring out how to assess if they were severe. Uh, you know, it's interesting to me that you said that this was a way of kids processing what happened in Parkland, Florida. So you think them making threats against their own schools in Montrose was a way of processing another school shooting? Yeah, I know that sounds kind of strange, but like kids, you know, especially when we're talking about our middle school and and like the beginning of high school age kids, they the they were, you know, we 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 see so much of their communication in online forums now. And so you're lacking a lot of context on that, but you have this written thing that looks uh, very bad. And so they were in group messages. Um, they were posting on their social media feeds. And, you know, like if I was to do it, I'd do it this way. Or um, and, and so, yeah, I think some of it was processing. But that was that in the in essence is the crux of the problem. Right. You got to figure out if it is, um, you know, a reactive uh, type of aggression um, or if it's targeted aggression. And and that's the challenge or the charge for behavioral threat assessment. And that is what you have focused on. You have indeed brought a military background, in fact, to this. So talk to us about how you begin to sort of separate this, the wheat from the chaff and say, you know, this threat is real, this threat is empty. Yeah, well, like you spoke to, I was a military intelligence officer in the U.S. Army for uh, just shy eight years on active duty. Um, and then I came into education and um, taught for a while and then became an assistant principal. And for me, you know, I had served in the Balkans and in Iraq, and we were constantly processing, um, you know, counterinsurgency or, or trying to to break into the terrorist planning cycle. And a lot of my training was about that. Well, when I came into schools, I started reading all the stuff that the FBI, the U.S. Secret Service, um, and the Department, you know, the U.S. Department of Education, Department of Justice put out about, um, you know, the 10 key findings. So all the stuff they published following Columbine. I was a student teacher when Columbine happened um, in Greeley. And, and so trying to, to merge my military background, which was all about, you know, predictive analysis uh, with 
the best practice from the feds and to include the state of Colorado one. And all of those things said, you need to do community-based threat assessment. And the, the challenge of that is you take all this research, which they all point to the same things, uh, but they don't really tell you how to do it in the community. They say who should be at the table, but they, they kind of leave it um, up to each individual community on what partners can actually get together and work together, and then how to work through identifying pre-incident behaviors and whether or not you want to try and go at it from a, do I have a low, medium, high type risk, or am I, is this a transitory threat versus an immediate threat? Um, whereas where we ended up kind of moving was towards trying to determine whether it was reactive or targeted. And we did that um, after visiting Salem, Oregon. Salem, Oregon had a program in place that has, uh, in large part, inspired what has gone on in Montrose. Um, you talk about community-based threat assessments. I'll say that you uh, have developed a close relationship with police, the sheriff's office, the local mental health center. We can talk more about that in a bit. But could you give us an example of a credible threat that was thwarted so we can understand this? Uh, I think that that's... that's um hard, you know, to give a specific example, if we're doing our job well, right, um, we, there, then we, we intervene, this is a preventative model, we intervene far before an individual is going to rad radicalize. Um, I was chatting with you guys earlier in prep for this, and I, you know, I, I, I think we have definitely um, intervened on multiple occasions over the past three years and prevented a student from making a poor choice. Um, you know, we process uh, quite a few threats at the school level, or we process situations where teachers, staff, community members, students are concerned about an individual and what they're saying. And um, a certain percentage of those, somewhere around one third of them, get pushed up to the community level team. And I can say in all those cases, I believe we've had an effect on that student and made our community safer. So but the, the, the key is like we're affecting that student and that family who's at risk as well. You know, I think what I hear you saying is that not every threat means that you immediately involve the police, for instance. Um, that is when it reaches a different sort of level. Right. Not every threat equals a charge, I think is a good way to think about it, because we Police are a partner in this. They're, you know, I think of it as a three-legged stool. They're one of the legs of the stool. The school's the other leg, and our mental health professionals, whether at the school level being a counselor or at the community level being our community-based um, uh, mental health provider, uh, we so police, I would say, are involved. They have a lot of good information. They they are out in our community every day on the streets. But yeah, I totally agree with you. This is not a punitive model. It's not trying to scare them straight. It is, it is, it, we, we don't, uh, most, all of those cases, hardly, very few of those cases go to the point where we are charging a juvenile. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, Ryan, it's tough. Like, even if you charge a juvenile, um, in most situations, they're going to be, if they meet the screening criteria to be detained, they're still going to be released to their family or their guardian within 24 to 48 hours. So, like, when you think of a charge as a, as a period, it's really not. It's just a speed bump. Like hmm. that charge happens and then that case is going to go on over the next year. That doesn't 
in and of itself make your community any safer. And so you're trying to address uh, more at the root of this. If you're just joining us, I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters, and I'm joined by James Pavlich. He leads operations for Montrose County Schools, where he has helped develop uh, a program, a system to assess the threats of school violence uh, that his district faces. And this approach uh, is being replicated. Uh, Folks in the CU Boulder community have taken note, researchers there who are looking to replicate it. And, you know, there's a lot of focus, James, on school shootings and mass shootings. Uh, They are high profile. But, you know, often violence is turned towards oneself. I mean, young people and suicide is a real reality in Colorado. And I understand that that is uh, in large part as well what you are helping assess, correct? That's correct. I think I do three suicide risk assessments for every threat assessment I do in our community. And I I think that's one of the most impactful things that we've been able to um, implement with our threat assessment program. So it's threats to self and threats to others. Um, I have to give credit to our community mental health provider. They went with me when we went to Salem and, and as we were heading back to the airport and deciding we wanted to do the threat assessment model, Laura Byard said, what, I see they've got the same kind of two level system for suicide. What do you think about implementing that? And I was like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And you know, I didn't realize how hard that was going to be. Um, uh, it's been very hard to put in place, but it's, I think, been one of the most powerful things we've done in this community to make our students safer. How many suicide threats do you think you've intervened in? Uh, I think on a, on, on a yearly basis, we're doing more than 150 suicide risk assessments, uh, and about one in three of those, it's a little lower than that, it's probably more like 27, 26% of those, are what we term a level two threat, which means they go to a, they get a crisis response, or, or, or the community mouth the crisis walk-in clinic here in town. So they're going to talk to a mental health professional. Um, And so I think we've had a pretty big effect, you know, um, over the last three years, we've been pretty fortunate on with, as far as youth suicide goes in our community. I, I guess I'd, if you can try to articulate this for us, I'm trying to understand how you discern whether something is an empty threat or it's got real weight to it. So like, what's one thing you've learned from, you know, the the long history of what the FBI has done, for instance, uh, that tells you, oh, this is valid. This is something to move forward on. So I think, you know, one of the biggest things you're looking for is whether it is reactive aggression. In other words, did someone, to make it super simple, did someone poke that individual in the chest, either physically or with words or with writing, and they responded in kind? Or do we see a more, you know, Reed Malloy speaks to the cat. Do we see a more predatory behavior going on hmm. where they are deliberately taking steps, they're calm um, with a specific target in mind? So. For us, we're really, the biggest thing you're trying to figure out is, is this reactive aggression or targeted aggression? Targeted aggression. I think that is really the strength of what John Van Driel um, and Salem have been doing for the past 20 years. Oh, and you, thank, you know, the FBI pointed us to them. Uh, that's why we went up there to visit. 
Thanks for helping me understand that. That's much clearer. So one thing we know is that some attacks on schools have been perpetrated by people who are no longer students at those schools. So you can have your eye on the student body, but then do you also need to track former students? What what does that look like? Yeah, I think uh, one of the biggest things you have to understand when you start doing behavioral threat assessment is you're, as a community, we're going to be working with these these students that are a significant risk throughout their lifetime. You know, this this work leads you into adult threat assessment teams as well. Um, you know, our latest attack uh, that, that has been in a forefront in the news was a, a former student, 18 to 19 year olds, you know, Parkland was the same deal. Yep. Um, so yeah, you have to keep track of these kids. And what's powerful about the model is when you have 11 organizations meeting on a weekly basis for two hours to talk about kids and figure out what they need, um, you have the relationships built to support those students after they graduate. You know, Mark Fulham's book, Trigger Points, talks a lot about that that kind of, you know, lifetime commitment you end up having to support these individuals that are of significant risk for targeted aggression. But that is a tremendous amount of time and energy. I mean, if, if you're trying to monitor all of the kids in the district and ones that have moved on, uh, and I'm thinking of all of Colorado's various school districts and the local control they exert. I mean, that's a major investment of time and money, I have to think. Uh, I, I think it is, it is not insignificant. But I think you have to remember, you're not tracking, I'm not tracking 6,000 kids, mm-hmm. you know. I'm tracking um, a very you know, limited number of individuals who the community has informed me of, uh, that, that need help. Like, so if you think of this as a school district's charge, I'm with you, it's impossible, but it's a community, um, charge. It's for our students, our families and our law enforcement, mental health, um, you know, judicial system. Like all of us are working together to really focus in on that small number of individuals within uh, a community who um, need uh, help. Do you have a position on guns and what kind of gun safety laws you think are needed to make schools safer? Well, you know, I'm a gun owner. I hunt um, big game and birds. Um, I've been raised in the rural West. <laughs> so um, I think the, the my, my position is we need to focus on uh, the pre-incident behaviors that get people, that help us identify those who are perpetrating targeted or intend to perpetrate targeted violence. I think the emphasis needs to be on creating systems and cultures where we know um, that we can report concerns about individuals and that they will be taken seriously and followed up on with a preventative focus by a community team. You know, um, I can, obviously prevention is an aspect, or protection is an aspect of what we do. You know, we improve access control and physical security and our emergency management procedures in our schools uh, to look and, and to make our schools a harder target. But the most, for me, the center of gravity, the, the hub of the wagon wheel, as it were, um, is a threat assessment. It's creating cultures where you can break through our our uh, society's natural tendency not to report, to just be a bystander. I think uh, the percentage is like 88 or 90% of the time, 
according to the FBI, um, someone knew they were going to do this before they radicalized. And where we get in trouble is um, they don't share it. And my understanding is that based on the nature of your community, you sort of assume that every child might have access to a gun. You kind of go in with that assumption. If if other um, families, school leaders are listening to this, where would you have them start? What would be the first step you'd have them take? I'd say come check out a community that's doing it well. Head up to Salem, come out to Montrose with your law enforcement partners and your mental health partners as a core team and set up a, a community-based threat assessment model. You know, I mean, if, if the goal is to, you know, like let's, let's focus on human behavior, which we can impact and change. We have the power to do. Um, and our community as a, as a whole can, can make themselves safer, you know, and I'll mention that CU Boulder has taken notice of this as well. Um, and uh, you have heard then from other school communities in Colorado, just briefly. Yeah, we uh, we work with the Uncompagre Boses to our south. There's six school districts down there. Um, we communicate regularly with Delta and I know Tim Leone up in District 51, their security director, and collaborate when it makes sense, as well as with Gunnison. Um, uh, We are right now talking to some school districts in the southwestern portion of the state. And so, yeah, we're we're talking. We always go out to the Colorado School Safety Center Resource Centers Conference. And, you know, COVID has impacted the last few years. We've been uh, very self-focused. James, thank you so much for helping us understand this. That's James Pavlich. He's director of operations at the Montrose County School District. And we discussed the threat assessment program that he has helped develop there based on one in Oregon. And Colorado Matters continues in just a bit. This is CPR News and KRCC. One of the country's first rodeos took place July 4, 1869 in Deer Trail, Colorado. Today, top prizes can be thousands of dollars. Back then, the winner won a new set of clothes. The word rodeo means roundup in Spanish, and every year, cowboys and girls compete across Colorado. In winter, there's the National Western Stock Show. Summertime brings weekly competitions in Steamboat Springs and annual events like the Pikes Peak or Bust Rodeo, Cattlemen's Days in Gunnison, and the Greeley Stampede, which was first called the Spud Rodeo in 1922 in tribute to the potato crops around town. Celebrating all things rodeo is the Pro Rodeo Hall of Fame in Colorado Springs for the people and animals who've made their marks in arenas around the country. Like the bucking bull who threw almost every rider who tried him before retirement in 1995. His name was Bodacious. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Dazzle Jazz in Denver. A fierce advocate for people experiencing homelessness is stepping down after 36 years. John Parvensky leads the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. And to understand the difference he's made, CPR's Andrea Dukakis spoke with a woman who says Parvensky helped change her life. Cuica Montoya stands in the hot sun, pointing to dozens of tents neatly lined up in a parking lot in Denver. They were originally designed as ice fishing shelters. Each site has about 50 tents, and they're built on wooden platforms. 
Montoya runs the Safe Outdoor Spaces program. Individuals or couples are each assigned a tent. The hope is they'll eventually find more permanent housing. The lot has portable bathrooms, showers, an area to do laundry, and cooling stations when tents get too hot, which they have a lot lately. Staff are on site round the clock to offer support, including job placement, the sort of help Montoya once needed herself. I experienced homelessness for three years in the city I grew up in here in Denver, and it's the most unimaginable life-altering traumatic event that you could possibly think of. She had a house and a career, but mental health issues and addiction turned her life upside down. It took three different organizations to help get me back on my feet. Montoya eventually started helping others get back on their feet and crossed paths with John Parvensky. It was like meeting a legend, right? And I'm like, the first thing I did was thank him for what he did because like, I wouldn't be where I'm at if I didn't have these services. Parvensky insisted that the executive board of his organization, the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, include more members who'd had personal experiences with homelessness, including people of color. So Montoya joined and still serves. After nearly four decades fighting homelessness, Parvensky himself readily admits the problem he's tried to fix is getting worse, not better. It clearly is the most regrettable part of the fact of working on an issue for 36 years and despite moving tens of thousands of people off the street and into housing that we're seeing more or losing their housing and ending up back on the streets. Parvensky blames the cost of housing. Housing has become a commodity in our society. If you own it either individually or as a landlord, you want to see the value go up. But if you don't own it and want to buy or if you want to rent, When those prices go up, you're locked out of that housing. And we're seeing more and more people being locked out because incomes aren't rising fast enough to keep pace with that limited stock of affordable housing. He says drugs and mental illness only compound things. And yet Parvensky has made inroads. By his count, the coalition has built or acquired over 2,000 affordable housing units. On any given night, the group says it houses up to 4,500 people or families. And it has its own primary care clinic. Recently, Parvensky worked with the city of Denver to lease 800 motel rooms as a way to reduce the spread of COVID-19. There's been a lot of debate as to, you know, whether we can truly end homelessness. Uh, What we do know is we can end homelessness for a family, an individual, day after day, multiple times if we have the resources to do it. Parvensky will step down for good when they find his replacement, which Cuica Montoya says won't be easy. Do we think that there's going to be that one person? No, we can't fully replace John. This is a really important role, and we're going to do our best to find um, the best fit. Another challenge, getting the public's buy-in as unauthorized encampments grow. Parvensky warns without it, the problem will only get worse. Andrea Dukakis, CPR News. At black barber shops and salons, there's a program that offers free health screenings, but it's been on hold for two years because of the pandemic. CPR health reporter John Daly says it's back in action. The tunes are playing at Beauty Supply Warehouse in Aurora as Leander Robinson Bragg washes one customer's hair while she greets others. Hi, kiddo. Say hi, Miss Leander. 
A sign at the entrance reads, get a cut and blood pressure check. Sitting at a pair of card tables inside, a group of volunteers with the nonprofit Colorado Black Health right, Collaborative. Have you had your blood pressure checked recently? Yes. That's Adrian Elias. He's 30 from Aurora. How come you decided to get your blood pressure checked today? Because the opportunity was here. I'm actually here to get a haircut. Elias used to be a truck driver. Now he's a warehouse manager. He decided not to get the COVID-19 vaccine, but he's made other changes and lowered his blood pressure. I started losing a lot of weight. I was almost 400 pounds, and now I'm about 349. Been putting in a lot of work. What kind of work? Changing your diet, less soda, less bread, just eating better. Longtime Denver primary care doctor Terry Richardson smiles as she hears that. Every Saturday since 2012, volunteers have been giving health screenings at salons and barbershops. The pandemic halted that. Richardson says now it's back. Kind of re-rolled out the program in June. We were kind of She says black communities have among the highest rates of high blood pressure or hypertension. She describes it as a silent killer, increasing risk of a long list of problems like stroke and heart failure. It's damaging your your vessels, it's affecting your heart over time, and you can end up with a lot of problems. Blood pressure screenings are an entry point, she says. They open the door for more conversations about health. Volunteers here also offer educational materials, information about COVID-19 vaccines, and referral advice. But Richardson says it's a soft sell. We talk about lifestyle issues, but some people need medications in addition to that. We're not trying to be their doctors, but we do want to get them connected. Salon owner Leanda Robinson Bragg says in a business that gets a lot of foot traffic, Hosting health screenings just makes sense. The stylists and barbers, we're everything. Nurses, doctors, you know, psychologists, everything. So we hear it all. And it's just good to have them here to make us aware. Awareness is everything. She says the last two years have raised awareness about all kinds of health issues. With the mental health, I think it's just now that people are feeling more comfortable to talk about it. As we speak, Robinson Bragg combs and cuts the locks of Shaka Swing, who nods her head and says it all comes down to trust. Hair is a very important thing, and I myself don't let anyone else touch my hair. Swing, who works in HR, says historically black Americans have a suspicion or distrust of medical providers. But health volunteers coming to her stylist salon helps ease that. I think it's a really great thing that they're in these spaces and assisting the people in these communities that are so often left behind. One recent poll found nearly 6 in 10 African Americans express complete or partial distrust in the nation's health care system. Another showed that's exacerbated by a lack of black health providers and negative interactions with the system. Richardson says it's still an issue. It really is a reason why we're here, because we're trusted partners and we've gotten to know these people and we just feel like they're part of the family. They feel like we're part of their family. And that just makes the program what it is, really. And this kind of program is perhaps more critical than ever. Recent data show life expectancy for all Coloradans has dropped sharply since the pandemic began, with black and Hispanic Coloradans not living as long as white residents. 117 over 84, it's awesome. Another customer, 18-year-old Camry Prince, a receptionist, says she's caught COVID-19 three times and is now fully vaccinated. She's immunocompromised 
and says the pandemic taught people a lot about self-care. So we had to learn how to grow and how to take care of ourselves from the comfort of our own home and within our community. Yes. The program is now working with 14 black barbershops and salons in Denver and Aurora, taking health screenings directly to the community, meeting people where they are. I'm John Daly, CPR News. And when we come back, pioneering Boulder County clerk Cleela Rorex gets her day. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You wait for the bus, the weekend, and you wait for your morning coffee to finish brewing. But you don't have to wait to get live news from CPR. Just come to CPR.org or listen live on the Colorado Public Radio app on your phone. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The pioneering county clerk, Cleela Rorex, would have turned 79 on Saturday. She died last month after complications from surgery. Now her birthday will be remembered as Cleela Rorex Day in Boulder County. She was the first county clerk in Colorado to issue same-sex marriage licenses, and that was in 1975. Well, I'm Cleela Rorex. And Rorex is my maiden name. I grew up in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, on the Western Slope. My parents, my mother was a teacher, and my father was the county clerk. He served as county clerk for 30 years. And that is one reason when the position was opening up in Boulder, I thought, well, I know a little something about the job. I think I'll run. Her story is retold in History Colorado's podcast, Lost Highways. Jason Hansen and Noel Black blended interviews they did with archival tape. Rorex shared what went into her decision, the backlash, and an unusual request she got. Three months after I had been sworn in, two guys from Colorado Springs came into my office, and they were both named Dave. And they asked me for a marriage license because the Colorado Springs County Clerk had said to them, we don't do that kind of thing here, but you might go to Boulder, knowing Boulder's reputation. Cleela knew the request was unusual, but she was a stickler for procedure. I didn't know if I could issue a marriage license. I looked at the marriage code. It didn't specifically say that marriage had to be between a man and a woman. But I told them I'd have to get a legal opinion from our district attorney, and that's what I did. Cleela took the issue to Assistant DA Bill Wise, and after researching it, he told her that Colorado state law wasn't explicit in either direction. Legally, she could do whatever she wanted. The way it was written did not specify that marriage had to be between a man and a woman. I mean, of course, it was assumed that that was it. There were never any other assumption ever made. But it didn't say that. Cleela took a couple of days to think about it. And I decided I would do it. On March 26, 1975, Cleela Rorex issued a marriage license to Dave McCord and Dave Zamora, who were married the following day. Here's Cleela again from her oral history with the Carnegie Library for Local History in Boulder. I issued that license based really on one premise, other than, of course, the fact it was not illegal. 
I was a feminist asking for equal rights. And I felt very deeply, who was I to deny equal rights to someone else who was asking for the same? And that was pretty much the, at the core of all of it and why I made the decision to issue those licenses. It's important to point out here that the license Cleela issued was not the first. The first same-sex marriage license ever issued in the United States was given to Michael McConnell and Jack Baker in Blue Earth County, Minnesota in 1971. They got it through some clever legal maneuvering that involved changing Jack's name to the gender-neutral Pat. Their case was the first to legally challenge the definition of marriage, but was eventually turned down by the U.S. Supreme Court. And there was at least one other license, which was issued to Sam Burnett and Tony Sakuya in Maricopa County, Arizona in January 1975. But their marriage failed to attract national media attention and was ruled void by a judge within a few months. What made Clela's licenses different was the media frenzy and political backlash that they spawned. I was naive in terms of the degree of hell that followed. I had no real conception of how negatively, really, that that would be received by so many. I mean, I knew it was something different, for sure. It was the hate that I wasn't expecting, the pure hate. And it came from all over the country as word spread. And I didn't really think that word would really spread. To me, this was a a decision that I was making based on our state statute, based on my right as a county clerk. Cleela got a lot of angry, sometimes hateful phone calls. Some warned that Boulder would become a gay mecca or that property values would plummet. Others presumed she must be a lesbian. The stress of the public backlash gave her crippling migraines, and Cleela wasn't the only one affected by the hate. At the time, my son was, I think, six, and people would just call the house indiscriminately, uh, no answering machine in those days, and they'd start spewing whatever they wanted to say to whoever answered the phone, and a couple of times my child answered the phone. Despite the vitriol, Clela stood by her decision. She issued licenses to three more couples over the next several weeks. Susan Mele and Sheila Cernovitz on April 7th, and then Terry Guillen and Davy Huff, as well as Neil Prince and Chauncey Hagen, all on April 11th. Then, on April 15th, a colorful local man named Roz Howard showed up at the courthouse. And I looked and I just thought, what is this? You know, all these media vans coming. I see him standing there with his horse. And it took a minute, but all of a sudden it dawned on me that he was gonna try to get a license for that horse. So I tried to call the DA's office to see what they would advise, but they were unavailable. I, I have no idea how it came to me to play it the way I did. It just, because I had no idea what I was gonna say until he was standing in front of me and I was asking this question and that question off the marriage license and asked Dolly's age and that's when he said eight and I just, somehow the presence of mind to lay down my pen and say, well, I'm sorry, but Dolly is underage. Can't have a license without parental permission. For a 
long time, Clela didn't like to talk about the horse story. She felt it perpetuated a comparison between homosexuality and bestiality that's often been used to dehumanize same-sex couples. That's from the episode Six Gay Weddings and a Horse from Lost Highways in History, Colorado. Jason, how do you think Clela Rorex's actions resonate today? Well, I think we can see pretty clearly that she was a woman ahead of her time. And one of the things I love about her story is she wasn't a, a gay rights activist. That wasn't why she did what she did. She was a feminist. And she was, uh, as we heard, thinking, if I want these equal rights, who am I to deny them to others? And I think we think a lot about, are we on the right side of history You know, in our own lives today? And this was a woman who showed us that one way, one really powerful way to make sure we are on the right side of history is to expand that sphere of liberty, that American project that gives more freedom to more people. And I just, I love that about this story that she didn't end up where she thought she was going to end up in this story, but it has resonated for uh, more than a generation. You know, we interviewed Governor Polis for this story as well, and he was born just down the street the same year in yeah, 19, Boulder. 1975. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that amazing? How do you think this resonates today, Noel? Gay marriage really wasn't even on anyone's minds, including people within the gay liberation movement. They weren't interested in it. They weren't particularly concerned about it. Huh. And now, you know, nearly 50 years later, we have the first openly gay governor in Colorado who has also small children. And, you know, it resonates, I think, nationally, but it also resonates for me very personally. And uh, to see that, to see, you know, Governor Polis um, with his husband and his kids and their goofy tennis shoes uh, in that photograph that was going around after he was elected, <laughs> it was incredible. Jason Hansen and Noel Black of History Colorado speaking with me in 2019. Their podcast, Six Gay Weddings and a Horse, explores the evolution of same-sex unions in Colorado. The issue remains top of mind after U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas suggested that a landmark marriage equality case be reconsidered. The U.S. House this week approved legislation to protect that right. Cleela Rorex died in June. She would have turned 79 on Saturday. Boulder County commissioners proclaimed her birthday Clela Rorex Day. And that is Colorado Matters, with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You can follow me at CPR Warner on Twitter. The show is at Colorado Matters. Thanks for spending time with us. This is CPR News and KRCC.